Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast with me, Hank, and my brother John, where we answer your questions and give you dubious advice and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, how are you? Um, not gonna lie, Hank, I'm not doing great. Um, You need to chipper up for the people. Yeah, I mean, I can fake chipper up for the people, but then, you know, I've been thinking recently, like, whenever I ask you how you're doing with your your health, you know, you always tell me that you're doing okay. Like, uh, you, you either say that you're doing well or that you're doing okay. Because, like, with chronic, with any kind of, like, chronic health problem, you never want to acknowledge that you're in a, uh, a bit of a valley. Yes. Um, even though, of course, like, there are those valleys. And then uh, it's just a weird thing, because if you acknowledge that you're in a valley, then people start to, like, ask you more about it, which doesn't really help. And, like... But it just, but 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 then you also feel dishonest, and maybe other people who have chronic health problems, when they're in valleys, they feel like it's unnatural or whatever. So I don't know. I'm just being totally honest. Uh, adjusting to this new medication, not going well. Um, so I'm in a bit of a valley, but the sun is shining. Um, as we will later learn in about in about thirty to forty minutes, um, wonderful things are happening in South London. Uh, there is much to be hopeful about. That is how I'm doing. How are you? Well, first of all, I just want to say how thankful I am that we got through your section of the How's It Goings without any mention, not a single mention, of Taylor Swift. Oh, that reminds me, though, that the weather is beautiful, likely because Taylor Swift's 1989 concert tour is coming to its American end very soon. (laughs) Uh, I'm doing good. I just had a Subway egg white flatbread uh, the onions were way too hot, and so now I feel like my entire body smells like a giant onion. But other than that, the people at the subway in Missoula, Montana, are lovely, and I, I like them, and they're always very, very friendly. Uh, several of several of them uh, appear to know who I am. Recently, I went in there, and they were like, so what are you doing this weekend? And I was like, going to Seattle. And they were like, oh, yeah, for the Night Vale tour thing. And I was like, right, yes, for that person who knows about my life well if they know who you are then it, there, there's a fair chance they're listening and if they are uh, you over onioned hank's flatbread 
under onion next time. Oh, they didn't over onion it. It was the it was clearly the onion's fault. There were not mm. a ton of onions. Mm. It was just very you know you never know how what density of uh, onion flavor is going to be in the. In the onion. That's so true. Another thing that happened this week, Hank, is uh, Halloween, which was lovely. Um, it was just, uh, it was just great. Uh, Alice dressed up as as a doctor, or as she says, doctor. Um, uh, and I, when I asked what kind of doctor, she would say a baby doctor. That's good. Um, and Henry dressed up as Clone Commander Gree from the Star Wars universe. Uh, Liverpool beat Chelsea, which is about the best result that you can hope for in life. And uh, Zulea, our office manager uh, here in the Indianapolis office, uh, watched Star Wars for the first time, the entire <laughs> sexology, which uh, she had never seen. Um, and I got to watch the first two Star Wars movies with her um, after after seeing her uh, Chelsea get defeated by Liverpool. So it was very enjoyable. It was a good, good weekend. Good, good. I went to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh and it was it was not not actually the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the Rocky Horror Show, uh, the the stage version which they do in Missoula, starring Reed Reimers, who is uh, the host uh, one of the hosts of SciShow Space. If you've ever seen him, he's Doctor Frankenfurter. That guy is like six six before he puts on his six inch te- heels. He does indeed look like a space alien uh, on on the stage with all of the normal people. It's amazing. Hank, would you like a short poem for today? Oh, thanks. Yeah, give me a short poem, John. I've been holding on to this one, Hank. It's a single line of perfect iambic pentameter, the last will and testament of John Keats, the great British romantic poet. My chest of books divide among my friends. Are we, are we done? Was that that? That's the poem. That is his entire last will and testament. My chest of books yeah. divide among my friends. Ah, well, at least we got to the death quick. Yes, he knew he was dying when he wrote that. Uh, another great line of iambic pentameter um, that uh, Keats wrote in his diaries. Um, he'd been taking care of his brother who had tuberculosis, and uh, Keats um, Keats began coughing, and he coughed up some blood. And uh, near the near the drop of blood in his diary, he wrote, "This drop of blood, it spells my death." Wow! I guess that's actually a line of iambic quadrameter, but you know. <laughs> Oh, man. Still pretty dark. Yeah, I'm glad that we uh, don't have so much tuberculosis uh, in the world, but, uh, you know, m- much at all here in America. That's actually, I guess there is. There but is... we still have way too much tuberculosis. It's ridiculous, it's actually, and now, how much tuberculosis we have. Now we have the, the tuberculosis that, uh, that, can't, that is very difficult to treat. As well, yeah. There's multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis, but also just the uh, you know the treatment regimens. I, when I was in Ethiopia, I spent a lot of time, or at least a you know a few hours, not a lot of time, with some um, uh, with some tuberculosis patients who you know have to come into these primary healthcare centers uh, pretty much every week to get uh, to get the right medication and and to you know get their their loads checked to find out how much tuberculosis they have and everything. And what was really interesting to me is that uh, before those primary health care centers, uh, they just, there was there was no way to get the medication that you needed, which is part of the reason that we have so much drug-resistant tuberculosis, because we had very poorly controlled ways of dispensing uh, antibiotics, and like, and often the wrong ones would get dispensed because it would be, you know, an unlicensed or untrained person or a family member trying to buy medicine for someone. And uh, it was a really, really interesting and like an illustration of how badly 
we need this relatively inexpensive um, but sort of difficult to maintain, difficult to invest in uh, primary healthcare systems in the developing world. Like once we have those places, once you build that infrastructure, it completely transforms those communities. What were we talking about? What is this podcast devoted to? Is it about John Keats' death and global health, or is it about answering viewers' <laughs> questions? All right, let's do one. This question is from Clara, who says, Dear Hank and John, I really enjoy listening to your podcast while cooking. Would you mind screaming, oh my God, it's burning, every now and then? Uh, that would be incredibly helpful. Uh, apparently, Clara, Clara is having a hard time uh c- preventing herself from being distracted by our excellent death-based humor and is burning her food. So let's just, uh, let's remember to yell at Clara every once in a while during this podcast. Oh my God, it's burning! I think, I think probably she's good right now, but maybe not. Well, she's got that, she's got that. She can just um, make it so that her timer, instead of just making a beeping sound, uh, makes that sound. And I think that that would, uh, it would persuade almost anyone to take their pizza out of the oven. You know, I think I might do that. I might that that might be my new timer. Can how do you do that on an iPhone? Somebody somebody tell me how to do that. At Hank Green on Twitter. And Hank G R E on Snapchat. Oh god, I knew we were not going to get through this podcast without you rev- you saying again your po- your Snapchat username. Sorry, I get all f- befuddled when we talk about Snapchat. <laughs> Let's answer a different question. Okay. Dear Jenny. Nope. Dear John and Hank. <laughs> <laughs> The question is from Jenny. Dear John and Hank, my husband is incredibly creative and talented in using words. His writing has dramatically dropped since we have been married for two years, and it worries me. How do I encourage a writer to write without being pushy? If you've had a similar experience, what has been most helpful to you from your spouses? Um, That is from Jenny. Dear Jenny, here is my response. (laughs) Um... uh, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's sister once, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's sister was a great sculptor and uh, but she did, she she chose not to make art for most of her life and most of her career. And Vonnegut would always bother her about it and say, "Why don't you make Why don't you make art? Why aren't you sculpting?" And uh, she said, "Just because you're good at something doesn't mean that you have to do it." And uh, I guess the first thing that I would say is that like uh, people who are talented at something are under no responsibility, in my opinion, anyway, uh, to do it. You know, if it if it brings you joy and and if it um, uh, then, then by all means, uh, do it. And I don't think that you should use that as an excuse not to do things, but I also don't think you're under an obligation to do something just because you're good at it. And my wife is an incredibly talented drafts person. Hank, you know this, like she, uh, you know, like her, her work with graphite and pencil is just astonishingly beautiful and has been since college but she doesn't really like to make art like she doesn't want to be an artist that's not what she wants to do with her life at least right now and so um and so she doesn't and i used to i used to feel the way that jenny does i used to feel like maybe if i push sarah maybe if i got her art supplies maybe if i did this or did that but like you know it's it's not my life and and my you know and 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 uh sarah's dreams are not my dreams for her um, now that said, like if your husband wants to write and just is finding it difficult, I guess the thing that I would say that's most helpful to me is, um, is when, you know, my partner, uh, helps me to make time to write, you know, puts it on the calendar with me and honors that time and even honors it when I don't succeed at writing. Like even, even then is like, okay, well, we'll just keep, keep trying. Excellent. Um, oh my God, it's burning. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I would, uh, I just watched a, a short documentary 
uh, called Wonderland about an ultramarathoner. And I felt myself wondering through the entire thing. And I, uh, to me, the point of the documentary was, uh, was explaining to me why on earth someone would do something like this. So this guy was, uh, he was trying to do a, uh, an, uh, to, to break a world record for the fastest uh, run around Mount Rainier. And, uh, and it's, it's about a 20-hour run. And uh, that's just, a, that's a crazy thing to me, to run for 20 hours. Uh, what? Why? And it makes me think of, like, why we find the things valuable that we find valuable. And, uh, you know, like, there's no objective reason why running around Mount Rainier faster than uh, another person is is valuable. Um except that it is a remarkable feat. And also there is a community of people who support each other in doing that thing. Do you find it, as a writer, John, important to be a part of a community of other artists? In a roundabout way. I also just watched that documentary, Hank, at your recommendation. Um, and I also found it fascinating. Immediately after watching it, I went and ran for seven miles until I vomited. Um, <laughs> really? So that's what I took away from it. Um <laughs> I didn't do that. I had a I had a flatbread from Subway. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a really it was a really good documentary. It was made by uh, Ethan Newberry, longtime YouTuber, and uh, was just just doing incredible work um, under the moniker the Ginger Runner. And uh, you know, I I do think that community is is important. I do think it's helpful to feel like you're writing um, with people and for people. But yeah, I mean, I guess I, I'm not one of these people who. Be- who who believes that much of anything has inherent value you know like i think that we um we sort of give things value we make choices about how to construct meaning in life and um you know we give we give meaning to stories and i do think there's maybe some objective meaning in stories but a, a lot of it you know a lot of it isn't there a lot of it is given given uh to to stories by the people who care about them and the same is true of running the same is true of soccer the same is true of almost of youtube of almost everything that we you know we love and care about like uh there are a few objective truths maybe there are a few objective goods um you know that 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 suffering is bad that uh parents shouldn't have to bury their children you know there that um that education is good. You know, there are a few, but not a lot. And, um, you know, in the course of a human life, you're going to, you know, you're going to do a lot of, you're going to do a lot of things that are not inherently meaningful, but are given meaning by the people around you or by the community around you. So I would, I guess I would say, you know, if your spouse really wants to write Jenny, then, um, you know, try to be part of that, that community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I would. I would never have have made the things that we have made over the past eight years on the Vlogbrothers channel or SciShow and Crash Course if it weren't for there being an audience there to make things for, and also a broader community of YouTubers who are doing different and interesting things that uh, that and, and like pushing each other to 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 make uh, make cool stuff. Um, and uh, and I'm really happy for to, to have gotten lucky to be a part of that. Hank, we have another question. Uh, this one is from Emma, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm getting to the age where I need to start facing interviews for various things, mainly university and jobs. Do you have any tips on how to present yourself to fit what the interviewer is looking for, but at the same time express who you are, even though you find it difficult to have the confidence to do so upon meeting new people? Also, how important do you think first impressions are in an interview and in life generally? Also, as an AFC Wimbledon player, 
player for the women's side of the club. What? Emma? (laughs) You really buried the lead here. Thank you so much for the support. We kicked off our season last Sunday, and I was wondering how good a football player you guys are. Uh, And then she explains the proper English football played with feet um, and a ball, as the name suggests. Uh, That's from Emma from uh, London in the United Kingdom. Look at that! First off, thank you for listening to our podcast and for your hard work on behalf of the AFC Wimbledon uh, girls, girls and ladies uh, teams. They are amazing. Did you know, Hank, that Manchester United does not even field a women's team? Manchester United, one of the biggest clubs in the world. Have I mentioned this to you before? It's possible. It's terrible. Um, AFC Wimbledon, however, has a really strong women's football program. And I'm so glad that, a, that they have Emma... Um, I don't know what position she plays, but either stoutly defending... Or scoring lots of goals. <laughs> um, as for as for interviews, I mean, Hank, wouldn't you just walk into the interview and say, uh, "My name is Emma. I play for AFC Wimbledon," and sort of wait to be accepted? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely not nothing. I I hire people a lot, so I have a number of actual thoughts on this. Uh, but first, I want to say that I am awful, awful at soccer. I did play as a child. Uh, my only experience as an adult playing soccer, there was a league in my uh, in my like uh, my graduate program, and uh, I, I walked on uh, as as support. I was like just watching as a fan, and then somebody was like, "Oh, you can go out and play play a bit." And uh, and in my career as an adult soccer player, the only thing I accomplished was getting winded, uh, almost scoring an own goal, and kicking my own goalie. Beautiful. So I, I was not, I was, I was, it was actually quite petrifying. It was one of the most embarrassing things that's happened to me in the last 10 years of life. I will briefly comment on my own footballing skills. I am terrible. Um, I played in an over 30 indoor league for a team called the Dead Rabbits. Um, I fouled a lot. That's my main, that's always been my main strategy. Um, <laughs> but I was, I was reasonably good in, in, in middle school, not like, um, not like good enough to start for my middle school's school's um, soccer team, but good <laughs> enough, good enough to come off the bench occasionally and have the coach point at me after the game and say, "Green's out there trying, even though he sucks. Why aren't the rest of you trying?" That's right. You were trying, even though you suck. <laughs> what um, are your thoughts on interviews? Oh, um, I think. The most important skill in life is empathy, and I think you walk into an interview, if you walk into an interview thinking, what does this person need, and how can I help them accomplish it? That's that's really like that's what that's what the actual thing going on is. Like like hiring someone for a job means I need help, and you can provide that help, and and figuring out like like. What are the like if it's if it's something as simple as a fast food position, like what that person is looking for is someone who's dependable, someone who will stick around, someone who will come in on time, um, someone who will learn fast and be enthusiastic about it. Um, and that is, you know, that's a lot of a lot of jobs. Um, but if it's something, you know, that require that has like a sort of deeper skill set, then uh, what you're looking for is like you know, how can I help this person solve the problems they need to solve? And uh, that's that's what jobs are. That's what every single job is. It's solving problems for for customers and for uh, and for your boss. That's that's what it is all the way up the chain until you don't have a boss anymore. And then you're solving problems for your customers and your employees. Um, 
And uh, that's, yeah, so like think it's obviously is a very broad thing because I don't know what kind of jobs you're looking for, but that's really what it is. It's going in, understanding that uh, that this isn't a person who's going to give you something. It's a transaction that's being made and, and they want uh, someone to help them. And if you're thinking about it that way, when I find people in interviews thinking about it that way, I'm much more likely to be like, you know, at the very least, they are empathetic and they get that I, just like them, need to solve a problem. Yeah, I think that's brilliant advice. I think that um, in the end, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, the person who's interviewing you probably wants to hire you or probably wants to let you into college, you know, and hopefully that can that can ease some of the pressure. It's a high pressure situation, though, and there's no getting around that. But yeah, I mean, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to add value to someone else's organization or to their lives or or whatever. Like, you know, looking back at my college interview, like I, you know, I should have been like, I should have walked into that interview and 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 just listened um, and talked about my interests and assumed that in that process I was going to be able to add value to the colleges that were going to be right for me. Um, but that's very I, I don't know that's very hard to do practically. But I think Hank's advice is solid. Yeah, I have a lot less experience as a as a person who lets people into universities than I do as a person who lets people into jobs. So I don't really know. I'm not really entirely sure what uh, it's. It's weird to interview to give someone money. Uh, which is which is the process of interviewing and, and applying to a college. It's all institutions that you give a great deal of money to, but they would first like you to uh, to feel honored to, for the pledge. John, let's move on to a, a question from Lou. But first, I have to say, oh my God, it's burning! We can't forget, John. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's probably burned in the interim. <laughs> this question. Uh, so Lou says, "Dear Hank and John." There must be a better way to express empathy than saying, I'm sorry. Saying, I'm sorry, places blame on the person expressing empathy and normally causes the person receiving empathy to reply with something along the lines of, it's not your fault, or even worse, misplacing negative feelings towards someone who was genuinely trying to voice compassion to their situation. I've taken to saying, yo, bro, I know that feel. But in some situations, it seems improper. What do you guys think? Is there better vocabulary that can be used to express empathy? Good question. I do think that, yo, bro, I know that feel is often improper. Um, Yes. I I think that is correct. Yeah, so when I was a a student chaplain at a children's hospital, I learned about this thing called empathic listening. Um, First off, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying I'm sorry. Um, I, I think that often that is what you feel. Um, is sorry. And, um, and I, I don't think that it, uh, at least like when I've been in pain, like sometimes hearing that I'm so- hearing that someone is sorry for my pain um, is helpful. But empathic listening is basically a version of yo bro, I know that feel um, that doesn't claim real knowledge of the feeling because like, in fact, like you might not know that feel, you know what I mean? Like, uh, you might not, you, you might, be able to relate to it or identify with it, but you don't want to uh, claim someone else's pain as your own or, or claim that you, you know, you fully understand it. So, um, you know, like an example of empathic listening might be that someone tells you that they're feeling very sad and you say, um, I'm hearing that you're feeling very sad right now. 
or, 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 or even like getting them to that place that you imagine that they're at or like acknowledging it. So saying you must be feeling very sad right now. You must be feeling very guilty right now, whatever. It sounds like the stupidest thing in the world. Someone says, I'm sad. You say, I'm hearing that you're feeling sad. Obviously in a perfect world, you want to, um, phrase it a little more <laughs> subtly than that so that, so that it doesn't feel awkward in conversation, but it is at least in my experience, astonishingly effective. Um, just to acknowledge what someone else is feeling and to acknowledge that you hear what they're feeling is um is really powerful that's a great answer i know nothing about that it's so it's so uh fun to realize how dumb you are sometimes and be like oh wow yeah i don't think about that at all so tell me i honestly i just want you to give a whole podcast sermon on empathic uh listening john because i i just i want to be better at that yeah well just imagine how how people are feeling or listen to how people are feeling and then say it out loud. And don't do the thing that I do, which is like, well, here's how you can fix your problem. No, do not go to problem fixing because it does not, A, it does not work. B, um, <laughs> when it is time for problem fixing, people will bring up, uh, will start to bring up solutions instead of bringing up problems. Uh, so I don't, and and also like, you know, in most in most cases of, of like, you know, in most cases of pain, like there is yep. no easy solution. The job is not to find a solution. The job is to find less aloneness right. within it. Yeah, it just always seems like uh, that's my that's my default position is to be like, there is a problem. How do I solve it? Um, yeah, I know. I well, we all want to like, mm-hmm. yeah, we all want to make suffering go away. Um, and I think that's why often we we minimize other people's pain or we, yeah. I mean, that's that's totally human. Um, but I think empathic listening is is the way all right we've got another question here it's from ryan who asks dear hank and john i noticed that each individual tree changes color in its own time and at its own pace it's not uncommon to see a tree whose leaves have entirely turned next to one whose leaves have barely begun to change why is that this person is referring to of course fall uh a thing that happens in certain places but not in others uh and deciduous trees who uh who remove their uh, a lot of the nutrients from their leaves when it is time for winter and then shed those leaves so that they can uh so that they don't have to protect those leaves through the harsh winter season and can remove and store some of the nutrients that were in them uh and this is a fascinating thing and it turns out it's super weird and fun and complicated and it has to do with external factors like microclimates that you might not even know are happening uh where like like uh, there's a tree on my street actually that uh there's a, a section of the tree that is near the street light uh, like there's a street light right next to it, and those leaves change less quickly than the, the leaves all around because the street light produces some heat, which uh, the leaves then interpret as uh, not needing to get rid of their uh, their you know they they can still continue to photosynthesize for longer, which is actually true, and it works effectively for that tree, which is amazing that something that evolved so long ago can can handle such a new addition to its lifestyle as a street light. Um, and uh, but there's also oh my god it's burning. <laughs> Thank you, John. There's also the fact that individual trees have uh, different, uh, like different, they've stored different amounts of nutrients. They can take more or less risk uh, because they they know that they have, uh, you know, that they either need more photosynthesizing time or they don't. Uh, it's pretty amazing that trees are able to make these sort of complicated decisions. Of course, they don't make them through what we would consider normal decision-making pathways, but through direct biochemical pathways. But those biochemical pathways are very, very complicated and confusing and we do not understand them completely. It is neat. Um, and I've also seen pictures of uh, of trees that are 
like uh, in a row and they're leading away from a building and uh, and the ones closest uh, stay greenest longest because the building itself is radiating heat either because the heater is on and it is inefficient or because the sun is hitting the side of the building and, and it radiates back out during the night um, uh, be, because it's some kind of large thermal mass. Uh, and it's I just think that it's cool. I love to observe fall, especially because I grew up in Florida where it didn't exist, and now I'm in a place where fall does happen and is happening right outside my window, and it's a lovely thing. Yeah, I am also a big fan of fall, although I did not know any of that before you told me, Um, but it's interesting. I like um, obsessively trying to identify whether or not this is peak fall, so... Oh, yeah. I will constantly say to my wife or my children, if you look outside right now, I think this might be peak fall. And then the next day I'll be like, <laughs> nope, uh, this is peak fall. But then it, it always it always ends without me properly acknowledging peak fall. I look out one day and, and peak fall has passed, yeah. as indeed uh, it has here in Indianapolis. It has here as well in Missoula, Montana. Uh, and I would like to tell you, John, that this podcast is in fact brought to you by peak fall. Peak fall <laughs> happening somewhere in the world right this moment, but not in either Indianapolis or Missoula. And of course, this podcast is also brought to you by. Oh my God, it's on fire! <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by running seven miles and then vomiting. Running seven miles and then vomiting, the only proper course of action after watching an ultramarathon documentary. And this podcast is brought to you by the AFC Wimbledon. Women's and girls teams, AFC Wimbledon women's and girls teams, astonishingly spending more money on women's football than Manchester United. This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by ZocDoc. Look, there are, I think it's fair to say, some imperfections in the American healthcare system, but there are ways that it actually has recently gotten easier. I don't compromise on a lot of things, but I do not love feeling like I can't find the right doctor for me. And I've gotten very lucky that I have found some good doctors for me. When it comes to your health, there shouldn't be compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines slash their family group chat slash their crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or they happen to take your insurance. Instead, like you don't have to keep going back to a doctor who you don't like. You can check out ZocDoc, a place where you can find and book doctors who make you feel comfortable, who listen to you, who prioritize your health, and you can search by location, availability, and insurance type. So literally, no compromises. Because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you think. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more phone calls and waiting on hold with a receptionist. We don't have time for this anymore. And these doctors all have verified reviews from actual real patients booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. The typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even sometimes score same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then you can book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash DearHank. Every time I know it's coming and I'm like, I'm going to have to say ZocDoc.com right now, aren't I? And then I do. I'm getting good at it, everybody. ZocDoc.com. 
All right, John, you got another question for us? Yeah, I do. This is of vital importance to me, actually. It's one of those questions that seems small, but the more you think about it, the bigger it gets. Uh, It's from Aaron. Aaron writes, Dear John and Hank, as discovered in the course of recent events I find too shameful to recount, it has become apparent that I have passed the prime of my Tetris-playing career, and indeed have found myself at the mercy of a sharp, unforgiving decline in my skill at the timeless game. How can I come to terms with my newfound deficit of ability and reconcile my identity as a nerd fighter in the face of this horrible crisis? So... Aaron, I don't know if you, like me, are 38 years old and in the midst of a midlife crisis, or if you're a young person who who just temporarily feels that uh, your Tetris playing is not as good as it used to be. But there will come a day, I I don't know whether it's actually come, again, you might just be experiencing kind of a a plateau in what will eventually be a, um, a, you know, a massive Tetris, um, a roller coaster that only goes up. But uh, at some point, the roller coaster will, in fact, go down and you will get worse at Tetris. It's happened in my own life. And uh, in general, this declining ability thing, you know, losing abilities and knowing that they're lost forever is very troubling to a lot of people. I think it's difficult to reconcile yourself to knowing that your health will never be as good as it once was, knowing that, uh, you know, your Tetris playing will never be as good as it once was. Um, so I don't really have any advice for you, but I do have quite a bit of empathy. Mm. Mm. I mean, there's also the fact that uh, if it, I tend to lose abilities that I no longer find as valuable, um, and 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 I and I like there's a piece of me that that wants to deny that, that is ashamed of it, and that uh, and that wants to honor my former self by uh, by holding on to those abilities and by by mourning their loss. Uh, but when I look at how I'm behaving, I'm behaving in a way that says, like, here are the things that are important to me, and this thing isn't uh, it, it isn't in the top ten anymore, and so I'm not spending as much time on it. Uh, and so it, it may be that other things have become valuable to you, and you should say to your former self, former self, you really liked Tetris, and I don't as much, and that's okay, and we can yeah. still be friends. Yeah, like... Like, you were really, really good at Tetris, 16-year-old me, but you know what I'm good at? A bunch of yeah. things, because I don't spend all my time playing Tetris. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I get, to, I get to have experiences you never dreamed of. No, oh, he probably dreamed of <laughs> Hank, we only have time for one more question before we get to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. No. Oh. Okay, this one's from Lauren, who says, Dear Hank and John, I'm getting a dog in a few weeks, and I was wondering uh, if you had any dubious advice about how to raise one. It seems this is the best place to find such advice. Thank you for your help. First off, Lauren, way to go coming to your favorite advice podcast for advice on raising a dog rather than any of the uh, resources that are available to you on the internet. Don't even look at that stuff. We've got all the answers right here at Dear Hank and John. Yeah. Uh, number one thing, uh, all they want is for you to kiss them right on the lips and, and put their tongue in your, get their tongue in your mouth. You might want to just put your whole mouth over their nose uh, and mouth or ears. Uh, tickle. They like to be tickled. That's a big, uh, big dog thing. Um, and uh, they're going to poop a lot. So just get used to that idea. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that I would say is reconcile yourself to a new reality. You know, like currently, Lauren, you live uh, presumably in a place where there's very little indoor 
out of toilet pooping, right? Like almost all of the poop that's created in your house, I suspect, goes directly into the toilet, and then and then it just goes, uh, you know, into the the sewer system. If it's if if you live in Indianapolis, it, it then finds its way to the White River. But um, but yeah, that's going to change. Suddenly, you're going to be living in a house where there's a lot of poop, um, and and you actually have to watch your step lest you make the situation worse by stepping in the poop and rubbing it into the carpet. Um, so watch where you step. Uh, prepare yourself for a new world that involves uh, quite a bit more indoor poop than you're used to, and um, you know, love love the dog, love your dog, even when it's difficult. Because they will love you back, not in the way that you love them, and maybe not in the way that you want to be loved, but in the way that suits them. So, yes, uh, ignore all other sources, and there are so many to ignore of dog-related advice. Uh, actually, you know what? Here's a, here's a legitimate piece of advice that has helped me a great deal in, in my relationship with my dog. When I first got Lemon, uh, I went to a training class, and the training class said to me, Don't imagine that your dog thinks like a human. It doesn't. Dogs, imagine a dog's uh, memory and thought process as a series of photographs. And they have certain photographs that they want to have happen more and certain photographs that they want to have happen less. And uh, and and the, the, you want to uh, build those stacks of photographs and and en- enrich them with details so that your dog will know uh, which photographs are good and which photographs are bad. And uh, and Lauren, I I think we both have no idea what Hank is talking about, and I, I think you should probably seek out the advice of experts. And you take the so the the photograph of your dog's good stuff is like like treats and love and toys and those things happen when good when the dog and you can like have the photograph of those things also include things like uh, not pooping in the house and sitting and being a good boy or girl and and then you have your bad photographs of not love uh, and 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 angry human be associated with the moment of infraction when the pooping and peeing happens inside of the home uh, you, or, or the barking or the bad thing that they are this doing. This might be the most dubious advice in the whole history of our podcast. Um, I'm sure that that made sense to you. Your dog's mind is just you. a series am, of photographs. Hank, I'm completely sure. Oh my God, it's burning! <laughs> I am sure that that made sense to you and uh, when it was explained to you, but something has gotten lost in translation. <laughs> Seek Just, the advice of an expert, Lauren. Your po- this podcast is no place to come for dog advice. Hank. Just crack it open and it's a bunch of pictures in there. <laughs> what is the news from Mars? In uh, the news from Mars, uh, there is a new kind of engine that could take us to Mars better and faster. So the hard part of getting to Mars is that you have to push the the uh, the, the stuff that you want to get to Mars there with fuel. Uh, and in order to make uh, thrust in space, you have to throw stuff out the back of, uh, of your craft. Uh, and you have to bring along stuff to throw out the back. And mostly how we do this is with chemical propulsion, where we burn things. And when you burn things, they become much bigger very fast. And then you use that uh, to eject it out the back of a rocket. And that's how you blow blast stuff into space and around in space. But you can also uh, use what's called an ion engine, which are very cool. And the way this works is by taking some kind of... of you know, material atoms, and you uh, and you use an electric current 
uh, you use a mag to to create a to create a magnetic field, and that magnetic field then blasts that material that usually it's ionized material out the back of the engine. And the advantage of this is you can blast those uh, those uh, atoms, the stuff, out the back much faster than you could blast uh, stuff out the back with a chemical rocket. And because it's going faster when it leaves, uh, it it actually creates more thrust on the other end. So you have to carry less stuff. Uh, to move things around more. I hope that made some kind of sense. The problem with ion engines is that they wear out very fast because you're bombarding lots of material with ultra-high energy radiation of, of, of some kind, and things break down really fast. They will not last long enough to send uh, to, to power a spaceship all the way to Mars. Uh, a new ion engine has been developed that gets around this problem by cleverly bending magnetic fields and could potentially uh, make it much easier to go to Mars with much less money. Well, good luck with that. AFC Wimbledon have won three games in a row, Hank! (laughs) That's right, three straight victories. And in in those three games, Lyle Taylor, who you'll remember as the Montserratian International, who plays uh, his... international football for the Indeed. beautiful island of Montserrat in the Caribbean. Lyle Taylor has scored four goals in those three games, uh, and he scored against Hartlepool. Uh, we beat Hartlepool, who I believe are known as the uh, the Monkey Hangers. Um, okay. I, I don't know if that's an offensive name, or but no, they appear to embrace it. Um, uh, yes, monkey hanger is a term by which Hartlepudlians are often known. According to local folklore, the term originates from an incident in which a monkey was hanged in Hartlepool, England. That's hilarious. During the Napoleonic Wars, a French ship of the type Chasse Marais was wrecked off the coast of Hartlepool. The only survivor was a monkey, allegedly wearing a French uniform to provide amusement for the crew. On finding the monkey, some locals decided to hold an impromptu trial on the beach. Since the monkey was unable to answer their questions, and because they had seen neither a monkey nor a Frenchman before, they concluded that the monkey was in fact a French spy, being found guilty. The animal was duly sentenced to death and hanged on the beach. Well, that's some that's some history that you really want to embrace, isn't it? Exactly. I'll tell you what, if that was part of my town's history, I would be sure to be known as the Hartlepool Monkey Hangers. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. They hung a monkey because they thought it was a French spy, and uh, now... <laughs> Now they know. And, now they're known as the Hartlepool Monkey Hangers. Anyway, AFC Wimbledon, not the Monkey Hangers, uh, won two nil, uh, and now have won three games in a row. Hank suddenly finding ourselves pretty close to the top of where we've ever been in the history of this club. Um, pretty, pretty darn close to the best league position AFC Wimbledon has ever been in, in its uh, 12-year history, um, or 14-year or history, I guess now. Uh, 25 points uh, from 16 games. We're in 10th place, but we are only three points from third. Uh, we play Portsmouth this week, uh, which is a huge club that uh, brings like 17,000 people to each of their games, but has fallen down the leagues because they went bankrupt and then they had to buy themselves. They're a fan-owned club like AFC Wimbledon. Um, we play Portsmouth this week. If we win that game, we will be equal on points with the third place team in the league. Uh, some pretty exciting stuff going on now just more than a quarter of the way through the AFC Wimbledon season. Oh, so there is still lots of time to go. Oh, there is a lot of football left to play, Hank. Okay. 
Well, there's a lot of Mars left to play as well. Uh, do you think that the guy, this uh, this Monserrati guy, is 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 the secret to your success, Lyle Taylor? I mean, yeah. I definitely think he's scoring a lot of goals. And the goal, I have to say, you can look it up on YouTube. Uh, if you search AFC Wimbledon Hartlepool um, highlights, the goal that he scored um, to make it 2-0, Callum Kennedy, uh, longtime AFC Wimbledon Wimbley Wombley player in my FIFA series, Callum Kennedy scored the first goal um, off a very long free kick. But the um, the second goal that Lyle Taylor scored was just an absolute beauty. Terrible angle, went in off the inside of the post. It was truly epic um yeah so i i think that i think he's the real deal um and you know that's the kind of player that if we can hang on to uh to a player like that through the end of the season we've already got a pretty strong um offense and the midfield's playing a lot better so i i think that we could be uh yeah i mean who knows who knows it's too soon to dream that's all i'll say but i'd love i'd love to be able to dream so um on my dreaming scale hank I'm currently dreaming about dreaming about dreaming about the possibility of well, that it was a very very pretty goal. Uh, I have to say, though I'm a little afraid that one of his teammates yeah. was offsides just before it was scored. I'm not entirely sure how the rules of this game work, but it does does not look like a technical legal goal to oh, me. Oh, it was completely legal. Just one a player can be offside; they just can't play the ball or interfere with play. Okay, well then, then I think that it was fine. Good. I'm glad that you. I'm glad that you enjoyed that, Hank. I'm glad that you got to see it. Um, this is uh, anyway. Lyle Taylor is. Oh, oh, that reminds me that I have to make a. Uh, I have to make a. Before we leave, I have to make a correction. As several viewers pointed out, I said that Lyle Taylor, our Montserratian international, used to, used to play for Patrick Thistle, in Scotland. Or somewhere. Anyway, that is incorrect. He used to play for Partick Thistle. And uh, while reading, I uh, (laughs) transposed the R and the T because, you know, Patrick is a word that I know and Partick is not. So there you go. (laughs) Oh, man. Partick Thistle. Anyway, uh, I don't believe that they're the monkey hangers. I'm very confused by this free kick. Oh, that that Callum Kennedy scored on? No, that no one scored on. It's pretty. It's. Uh, I think it went off the post, and then that there was an amazing save, but it didn't help them, John. It didn't help them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a penalty kick. Lyle Taylor had a penalty kick, and he kicked it off the post. And then there was a rebound. Um, that w- there was a great save by the Hartlepool goalkeeper, or else it would have been three yes. nil. So it's a great victory. Well, I love. I now that I know that there's like there's highlights for every game. This is much more exciting for me. Yeah. Uh, why didn't Why didn't you tell me about this before? It's like it's like watching a whole soccer game in two minutes. <laughs> I suppose it is. It's very. That was very exciting. That was a very exciting two minutes for me. Uh, the the t- the number one comment on this video is Lyle Taylor is the future. The number two comment is Go Dons here because of John Green. <laughs> That's good to hear. Um, I believe that yeah. Lyle Taylor is the future. Uh, he's he's just twenty five, and uh, I think he's the future not just for AFC Wimbledon but also for Montserrat in their um, long shot effort to make the twenty eighteen World Cup. <laughs> Well, I have no idea how that works. What did we learn today, John? Well, uh, we learned that John Keats is a bit of a dark soul before he died at the age of 26. Yes, and his books are available to you after his death if you are a friend. (laughs) 
We also learned, of course, that, uh, oh my god, it's burning! <laughs> I hope not. I hope Clara got through this entire episode without burning anything. Uh, let's, let's cross our fingers uh, that the pizza has come out just fine, and she's enjoying it and not burning the roof of her mouth right now. Did we learn anything else, or is that all? We learned about empathic listening, which is uh, a life skill that I would like to develop uh, with the help of my brother, John. And we learned about uh, trees and why they turn leaves, which I'd never really known about uh, until I had the help of my brother, Hank. And we learned that the inside of a dog's brain is just a bunch of pictures! Oh, boy. Thanks for listening to our podcast, <laughs> Dear John and Hank, or possibly Dear Hank and John. If you want to send us questions, please do so. The email address is hankandjohn at gmail.com. You can also find us on the Twitter. You can use the hashtag Dear Hank and John. I'm John Green on Twitter. Hank is Hank Green. He wants you to know that he is also Hank G-R-E on Snapchat. This podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. The theme music is by Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, Oh, my God, it's burning! burning! 